You guys doing all right? Okay, good, good, good. All right, I've got somebody in the back who's excited to be here. I'm glad for that. My name's Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. I'm so thankful that you're with us, whether you're joining us here in person or whether you're joining us online today. I'm thankful that you're with us. And hey, I just want to point out one thing before we get started today, that we do have foundation student ministry here for our students. You know, we're still a growing church. We're not super big, but I'm very thankful that we have a ministry for our 9 to 17-year-olds right now. I know it's a big spread, but they'll divide up and have some conversations about the sermon and how that impacts their life. And uh, they'll have pizza together and be able to hang out and play some games. So if you have students, make sure you invite them to Foundations today after the service. I am right about that. Foundations today, right? I'm, I want to make sure I'm good. Somebody, somebody with, who knows that. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So I want to make sure that that's happening. Uh, so uh, some man Marie out in the hall was like, yes, that's it. Okay, just making sure. Uh, so I want you guys to be aware of that and pray for them and then invite your students to that because eventually we want to see our student program be the place where we see the most baptisms happen here at our church. We want to be raising up students and sending them out for the sake of the mission. And we talked about that a little bit last week uh, with our Go sermon. That was the end of our Grow series. Remember, gospel gather groups give and go. Man, those are things that I want you to get deep down inside of you. But today, we're going to continue talking about going in a different way. We're going to be in Jonah today together. So if you want to turn to Jonah chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. And if you're still old school and you got the paper Bible, it's, it's, if you're looking for it, it's in the Minor Prophets. It's right after Obadiah. It's before uh, Habakkuk. It's, it's next to Obi-Wan and, and close to Chewbacca. So it's right there. That's a dad joke for today. That's my, that's my dad joke. They all sound like Star Wars characters. Okay, So it's right back in there somewhere. Uh, you'll find Jonah. Um, but I'm excited about this, and I'm also a little, you know, hesitant in the sense that I know there's always a danger when we come into a book like Jonah, because we all seem to probably know the story of Jonah. Even people, you know, who are not a part of the church or who are marginal in Christianity, everybody's heard of the guy who's been swallowed by the fish, right? Everybody knows that story. And so as we go into it, I don't want you to think that you know the message right away, because Jonah's going to teach us some deep, deep things here. If you haven't heard the full story, you've at least heard that part where he goes and, and is swallowed by the fish, and then God has the fish spit him back up, and he goes and does what God told him to do anyway, and it, you know it's all of that kind of, that, you know, God's making him obey type of thing. And there's either two reactions to that, usually there's two reactions on the, on the extremes. The one reaction is either you are a skeptic, and you look in at that, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's not, this is just stupid. It's outlandish. He got swallowed by a fish. That would never, ever happen. It's a fairy tale. It's a religious myth. You know, it's just one of those, or it's allegorical at best, but it's not something that can actually happen. You know, it's, it, it's too, too outlandish. So that's the one side. Or, on the far other side, I think that we come into it religiously. And you might be there where you see this story as kind of a gotcha moment for Jonah. You know, and, and it's Jonah trying to run from God. He's trying to disobey God. And so the story is about God making him obey. And then he finally relents and he obeys and he does what God told him to. And that's how you should be in your life. You should obey whether you want to or not. And that's not really the case here either, I don't think. It's, it's obey God or he'll get you, you know. Do the right thing or else. And I don't think that's the case here either. So in either of these cases, I think these are extremes that we need to be careful about as we come into it. Because if that's where you're at today... I think you're missing something because it does have some mythical characteristics to it. It may be some parable, almost allegorical-like characteristics, but at the same time, it's way more than just this kind of gotcha thing where you got to do the things that God asked you to do or else, you know, deal with the consequences, right? He's going to make you. Better watch out. God's looking over your shoulder. It's not either of those things. 
What we're going to see today, and this is the main point if you're taking notes and you can write this down, is we are Jonah. And so you can write it down this way. I am Jonah. I want you to apply it to yourself. I am Jonah. Not I am Groot. I am Jonah, okay? <laughs> I am Jonah. We are Jonah. We're going to see that. Over the next four weeks, we're going to see the story as a reflection of our own story and how it comes to us viewing and relating to God and then viewing and relating to other people who don't know God, okay? So it's going to be us and God and then others who don't know God. Remember, we talked a little bit last week out of Acts chapter 2 about how we relate to one another because we do know God. Now we're moving into Jonah and we're looking at how we relate to those who are lost or don't know the God of the universe or the God of the Bible. And what's really interesting about this story is that Jonah was actually a pretty successful guy. You know, he was pretty godly in a, in a lot of visible ways because we see him, he shows up in other parts of the Bible, but specifically in 2 Kings, he's in chapter 14, he's prophesying hope to, to the king uh, Jeroboam, who's a, one of the kings of Israel. And so he speaks this message of hope over Israel, which was rare for prophets to do. So it was a relatively prosperous time for, for the kingdom. And he got to be a part of leading Israel into that prosperity. So Jonah kind of comes into this story maybe with a little bit of a chip on his shoulders, maybe a little bit of arrogance, maybe a little bit of pride here because he was successful. He was a successful minister. He was successful in ministry. He had a big ministry. Everybody loved him. Everybody loved to hear him preach because he always preached good things all the time, you know. He made it to the top. But see, un unlike other prophetic writings that we're going to read in the Old Testament, Jonah has a really interesting narrative because it's about his personal disobedience against God. Totally different than what you see in all the other Old Testament prophets. It's not about the disobedience of God's people or about you know, God's uh, people's enemies. It's about his own disobedience as a prophet of God. Uh, the other prophets aren't like that at all. They're going to record a message that God gave them to Israel or to other nations, and it's usually going to include punishment and then maybe restoration for God's people. But in Jonah, it just is his disobedience. That's what the whole book is about. Which, can you imagine having a book written about your disobediences? <laughs> maybe a book written about your own failings as you know, a God follower. Now, I'll give you guys an example. It wasn't a failing in, in following God. Maybe it was because it was you know, shirking my responsibilities as a father. But we all love to laugh at the pastor. So I'll give you one of my own personal failings a couple of weeks ago. All right? Bo was starting preschool for the year, and Wednesday was his first day of preschool. Started off without a hitch, all right? I was supposed to take him, take him at 9 o'clock. So I took him, I dropped him off, Papa picked him up. It was all good, okay? That's how it was supposed to go. Thursday rolls around. Well, Thursday mornings, I have a meeting at 7.30 with my sermon planning team. And so we get together and we talk about the sermon. We talk about uh, every, everything that I have so far. Does it sound okay? Does it not sound okay? Is this sticking? Is this not? We go through that. And, you know, that's a lot of thought in my mind at 7.30 in the morning. Okay, so 7.30 goes to 8.30. That's when the meeting ends. Both supposed to be at school at 9. I get out of the meeting just a little bit late because Michael likes to talk. In case you haven't noticed, you know, Michael, I I, it wasn't all his fault. I was talking to Michael as well, Pastor Michael, uh, on the meeting call. And then so about 8.40 or so, I get out of the meeting, and I come out and Bo's in his PJs. He, he's hungry. He hasn't had breakfast yet. He just woke up not long ago, so I fixed the guy breakfast. And we, we sat down at the table, and I just start doing my crossword because I like to do that, and I'm old now. I'm a dad, you know, so I do that, and I read in the Bible, so I do some spiritual stuff. And, you know, 10 o'clock rolls around, and Papa texts and says, hey, when am I supposed to pick him up? I just want to make sure this is the right time. And it was at that moment that I knew that I messed up, okay? <laughs> it was that moment. I hadn't thought about it at all. I wouldn't have thought about it, but 
Bo was supposed to go to school at 9 o'clock, and he didn't. He didn't go. He didn't go that day. It was a failing of mine. My bad. I had a lot on me. It was, it was a problem. You know, so we got in there on Friday, though. Friday was a good day. Made sure that that happened. He hasn't missed school since. But I feel like Tammy could probably write a book about all the things that I forget all the time like that. You know, just insignificant things sometimes, okay? Come on. I mean, I forget where stuff's at, my keys, my, you know, my jacket. I, I've lost one jacket twice now. I have a th- I'm on the third. I lost my wedding ring three times. This is the fourth, I think, the third or fourth. Third, yeah. So I, it's just stupid stuff. I'm like the dumbest smart person you'll ever meet because I feel like we could sit down and have a conversation about like, philosophy and ethics and politics. I can do that in a very intelligent manner, generally speaking. But then, but then you know, I, I lose stuff all the time. I don't know what it is. Tammy could definitely write a book about all of my failings. And that's essentially, to get back to the text, <laughs> a little bit of, you know, confession here. Back to the text. That's essentially what Jonah is for Jonah, except obviously it's way worse for him. Like this is his disobedience to God. This is probably one of Jonah's worst moments in life. It's a book about his heart not being in line with God's heart. And Jonah disobeys God and actually runs from God's revealed will in his life. But it goes far beyond just following some rules. And that's what we're going to have to see today. And that's what I want to set up for you guys. It gets down not to following rules, but it gets to his very heart. What he loves, what he desires. His heart is rebellious against God. Because he fails to see God's love and mercy for even his enemies. So Jonah's going to be tested in this, and we're going to see this today. And the strangest thing is, he seems to be following God in every other way. Remember, he's a prophet of God. He speaks on behalf of God. He's a professional minister of God. And yet, the one thing that matters most to God, to love other people, he will not do, especially his enemies. And the scary thing is, we can be there too. We are Jonah in this way. We can be there. So let's get into this. Let's read the story. We're going to read through and take a break and talk and then read and talk. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. Let's get into it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now, by the way, before we go any further here, this is tracking with most Old Testament prophets and how they open up. You know, it's similar to the beginning of several others, including Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, a couple of these other ones, where it's the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the general structure that indicates now we're going to hear the message of God from this prophet. So an Israelite would be reading this. They'd come back and they think, okay, we're getting ready to hear judgment against Nineveh because that's what Jonah... Jonah was sent to the Ninevites to go preach God's message to them. And that's what we'd be thinking as we read this. And then, of course, that's not what happens, right? Verse 3, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. <laughs> this just took a turn. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. As if to emphasize, he's running away from the Lord's presence, okay? If you didn't get that, that's what he's doing. He's running. Jonah got a word from the Lord and he ran the other way. And in order to understand why, we need to understand just a little bit about the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. So it was very great in influence. It's kind of probably the reason this language is used here. And the Assyrian Empire was generally in modern-day Iran and Iraq. So to just think that region of the world and some of the other surrounding countries that are there now. But generally speaking, that's where Assyria was. And Assyria was an ongoing enemy of Israel. And it was likely that during this prosperity that they experienced during Jonah's time, 
And Jeroboam's time as the king, it's because they were paying taxes to the Assyrian king so that he wouldn't come in and invade them because they were invading everybody at that time. And so they were paying taxes. They were probably under the thumb of the Assyrians at some level, but they experienced prosperity because of that. And that's probably the time period we're in. So that means Jonah hated the Assyrians and all the Israelite people probably hated they were paying taxes to this evil empire. But it was good for Israel at the time because the Assyrians were pretty brutal. Habakkuk notes that in his prophetic writings, so you can go back and read Habakkuk if you're interested in that this week. But also, archaeological evidence agrees with the Assyrian Empire being brutal. They found both text and relief images of the Assyrian Empire depicting things like dismemberment of people, mainly hands, or skinning people alive, or decapitating them, or impaling them on pikes, or burning victims alive. It's been, I mean, it's pretty brutal. They're a rough crowd, okay? So Jonah knew that if he were going to go preach this message that God had for the Ninevites, one of two things were going to happen. Either, most likely, he would go preach and be killed by one of these gruesome methods that they were so known for because they'd almost certainly reject the message, right? Almost certainly. That's what we always think. They're pagans, man. They don't believe in God. They're going to reject the message. Why would God send me to somebody who's not even going to believe? I'm not going to do that, right? Or, beyond all odds they would actually hear the message and repent. Those are the only two options here that Jonah sees. And Jonah doesn't like either of them. He doesn't like either option. We don't know the exact reason why he fled, but given these two options, it was either out of fear or out of spite and a hatred. Probably a little of both, I would say, because it was a, he was a successful guy, right? He was successful in ministry. He was able to preach prosperity to people, they loved hearing him talk about that, no doubt. Again, not many prophets at the time preached that way. He didn't want to mess that up. There was probably a level of comfort that came along with that. Probably a level of arrogance and pride, right? Like he's preaching this to everybody. If he's awesome, he didn't want to mess that up with people. Of course not. He didn't want to get out of his comfort zone. He didn't want to go be brutally killed by these people that hate God and hate God's people. But of course, he also knew at the bottom of his heart that if God somehow forgave the people of Nineveh for all the things they'd done, he wasn't okay with that. He wasn't okay with that either. He wanted them to be judged. He wanted them to be punished. We see that clearly from chapter 4 as we go along. We'll get into that in a few weeks. But Jonah ran because of this. Now, I know the wording sounds silly when it talks about him fleeing from God's presence, right? And if you believe in God's omnipresence and omnipotence, you're like, how did he, why, why would he try to flee and run away from God? That's stupid, right? But see, the verbiage is that he ran from God's presence. Literally, what he was doing is he was running from the face of God. It was a relational kind of running away. He was, he was just trying to run away from God's will. Jonah was running away from the revealed word that God had given him. God's word had come to him, remember? That's how it started. And he was actively rejecting that word. And now he was living it out in his lifestyle by running the other way and this is what you can write down for us coming out of that. Running from God is rejecting his word. Running from God is rejecting his word in that way. Jonah knew God's word. He'd been given God's word. He chose not to follow it. He knew God, but he chose to act like a functional atheist in those moments. He jumped on the boat. That's what he did. He got in the boat and he headed the exact opposite direction that he knew God wanted him to go. And when you look at Nineveh, and Tarshish on a map, they're almost the exact opposite. Israel's almost right in the middle. So if you're in Israel and you look on the map, due east is where uh, Nineveh would be, you know, over in the Mesopotamian area, right? And then due west is where Tarshish would be, at the south of Spain. 
So like at the edge of the known world at the time, right? The only thing that's past Tarshish would be like America, okay? So that's why the two most opposite directions, God tells him to go here, he runs to there. As far away as he can go from God's presence, God's will. And we do the same thing all the time. This is, this is what I did in middle school and high school as a God follower. And I grew up in church and I believed in God as a child, but when I hit middle school and started to become a teenager, I started to move away from God. And people will look in at that and they'll go, well, yeah, but you were a middle schooler, man. Don't, don't be so hard on you. You were a high schooler, right? You were immature. You didn't know what you were doing. Your boys will be boys, right? And that is so, that is so not true. I mean, I mean, it's true that I was a middle schooler and a high schooler, but it wasn't, it's not true that I didn't know what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was doing. I, I was confronted with some things as I was growing in my faith that I didn't necessarily like. You know, I was confronted with things on how I ought to live my life and what my life ought to be about and what morality ought to look like, what I ought to enjoy and what I ought not to enjoy, who I should be living for versus who I shouldn't be living for. And I was confronted with all those things and I ran away. I didn't, it didn't seem appealing to me. I didn't want to do that. I jumped in the boat of the American dream. And I thought, man, that's what I want. I want the car, I want the house, I want the money, I want the girls, I want all of that. That's what I want. And so I went to college thinking I was heading off toward Tarshish, you know? That's what I did. And the crazy thing is, I was still going to church at the time off and on. I was still going, people would have looked into my life and said, well, you're a Christian, you grew up in church, you know God, right? You look like a good, you're a nice guy. You're a good guy. Yeah, all the while, my heart is far from God and running further and further away. I'm in the boat, man. I'm, I'm going. I'm gone. How many of you guys have jumped in the boat? Is that your experience in your life? Maybe you're still in the boat. Maybe you've gotten out of the boat. We've all had experiences like that. Maybe you've been trying to follow God's will, but maybe there's just this one thing in your life that you're going to say no to. There's just one thing that you can't pallet doing if you follow Jesus. You can't stop doing that one thing. You know, you don't want, you don't want God to touch that one thing. You've jumped in the boat. You're, you're in the boat and you're heading the other direction. Maybe for you, it's a relationship that you're pursuing that you know you need to quit because it's not honoring to God. It doesn't lead you to a place of following him better. You look in and say to God, no, God, that's the one thing that I'm not going to give up for you. Or maybe there's a sacrifice that God is clearly calling you to make in your life to give more money away for the sake of the mission instead of keeping it for yourself or for things that make you comfortable or happy. But you look in and say, nah, no, God. <laughs> That's the one thing that I'm not going to let you touch in my life. Or maybe there's a sin that you need to confess to your DNA group and you're still holding that thing back. You're so ashamed or you're too prideful or whatever the case is, you're afraid. Whatever it is, you say, no, God. That's the one thing that I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let that go. Whatever it is for you, there's always a way out of following God's will in your life. Always. But when you run and you jump in the boat, it's almost always going to result in you seeing a storm come up. Because God's going to use that storm to try to get your attention. That's what happens with Jonah here in verse 4. Let's keep reading. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and had fallen to, into a deep sleep. So interesting here, right? God uses the storm to try to get Jonah's attention, but Jonah goes down to sleep in the bottom of the boat. That's what Jonah does. He doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't care about the storm. 
And this language is almost poetic here in a sense that this sleep is like going into a deep sleep of death almost. That's the, the imagery that's supposed to be evoked with the language that's used. It's the same language that's used in Genesis for when God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he takes the side out of Adam to create Eve. So it's this deep sleep of death almost. And it's like Jonah is just totally disengaging from anything that he would hear from God. He's just totally disengaging almost with reality at this point. Because he, can, he won't even pay attention to the immediate danger that he's in. He's like, nah, I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm, I'm, I feel fine. You know what? He's asleep to reality, and he's headed toward death. So I've got a couple of things to point out here. We won't spend too much time, but this is why it's so dangerous, I think, for us to use the term peace as a good indicator of what God wants us to do in any given situation. When we're trying to look in at God's will and we say, well, I've got a peace. I prayed and I have a peace about it. Listen, Jonah had a peace, okay? He had a peace so much. He peaced so hard that in the middle of a storm, he goes down into the hold and he goes to sleep. When, every, when the sailors are all crying out and they're crazy and it's, I mean, he has a peace. He didn't even consider the storm. I recently heard Jackie Hill Perry, who's a Christian author and speaker, say that when she was a lesbian, smoking weed and stealing things and living a godless lifestyle, she was at peace. She said it just like that. And she said, and she was talking to this issue. Peace is not a good indicator of whether you're following God's will or not. It's just not, you know? When Jonah needed, what he needed to do was trust God's word that had already come to him. He had God's word. He knew what to do. He wasn't at peace with that though, was he? He didn't want the end of it. He wasn't okay with going. He wasn't at peace. So for us, we need to trust and follow God's word that has already come to us. So you can write that down if you're taking notes. We need to trust and follow God's word that's already come to us. That will give you peace. That's where the peace comes from. Peace between you and your creator and following his will that he's revealed in your life. You say, how do we know God's word, though, has already come to us? And of course, we would say it's the Bible, but it's ultimately the Sunday school answer. Really, when you get right down to it, it's Jesus. The answer is Jesus. That's how we know God's revealed will to us. Jesus is God's incarnate word, the ultimate final revelation of God's will that's come to us. So yeah, it's the Bible, but the Bible's about Jesus. The reason we have the Bible is so we know who Jesus is to us. It's Jesus is God's revealed word. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Talking about the Old Testament writings like Jonah, what we're reading. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's very definitive language. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It goes on to talk about Jesus and how he's God and all these different things. Beautiful, beautiful language. Jesus is God's final word. The Bible says that's all we need for faith and practice, to live as Christians. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. We need that revealed word. That's all we need in order to be able to live a life that is known and, and knowing God and doing his will in the world. He's already given us his revealed will by sending his son into the world to show us how to live that life of knowing and being known by God. That means we can trust Jesus in his teachings, not our peace that is somehow subjective in our lives. Very subjective. Peace can't always mean doing the right thing. It can't, it can't mean that. As a matter of fact, not having peace may be a better indicator that you're doing God's will sometimes, right? You don't want to do hard things it would not have been good for Jonah to go and get killed and murdered and tortured by the Ninevites if that was one of the options, right? Jesus didn't have peace when he went to the cross. 
He sweated like drops of blood, right? Asked God to make another way for him if it was possible. He was overwhelmed with sorrow and dare I say even maybe fear. But when he talked to God and he knew God's will, he said, not mine but yours, right? Not mine but yours. He, despite his lack of peace, he obeyed God's will. You might not have peace about something that uh, you need to say to your neighbor or coworker about sharing the gospel with him. That doesn't give you peace in your heart sometimes, right? To go and share about Jesus and what he's done in your life, but you should obey what you already know to be true. The revealed word that's already come to you to go make disciples of all nations, right? You, you might not have peace about speaking up when one of your managers asks you to do something unethical, but you should obey what you already know to be true and do what's right, no matter what the consequences are for you and your livelihood. Uh, you, you might lack peace in, in your marriage relationship or with your friends or with another relationship in your life, but you should obey what you already know to be true and not walk away from those people, but love and serve them sacrificially and seek reconciliation where that's possible, right? These are all things that God has revealed to us in his word and more, right? I'm just giving you examples to try to connect it to your life. Peace isn't the indicator. Doing what you already know to be true in God's will is. That's called obedience. Obedience is hard. But, you know, I mean, you can let sin creep into your life, and the more you let sin creep in, the more you get on the boat, the further down the spiral you're going to go. Here's how you can write it down as well. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. The, old, the way the old-time preachers used to say it is, sin always takes you further than you ever wanted to go and keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay. You know? And it's true because the boat is there waiting to take you away from God's will. There is always a boat waiting to take you away from doing God's will. And once you step into the boat, it's exponentially harder for you to come back to reality because the ship has set sail and you're moving away from God. It's not impossible, thank God, but it's hard. Sexual sin is like this, is a good example. It starts with looking at someone who's not your spouse, whether you're single or whether you're married, in a lustful way, right? It starts there, in your heart or in your mind. But then it quickly progresses to other things, physically acting that out, maybe through masturbation or watching pornography, and then it gets to harder and more depraved pornography. And maybe other than it leads into a dark and dark place, darker and darker and darker. It might lead to adultery. It might even lead to something worse. And I hate to be dramatic here, but I'm going to give this to you maybe as a shock factor. I don't know. But you know, every serial killer's story starts with small steps. And it always leads to really big steps that lead to very evil actions, right? James 1 says, But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. That's what happened with Jonah here. He's in this kind of death state. He's, he's spiraled downward. And that's what can happen to us too. How many of us go through storms of life and just totally ignore God through those? We continue running in the storm. We're at peace in the storm. Sin always takes us further than we ever wanted to go. But thankfully, there's still hope and God is still pursuing us. No matter what, he was pursuing Jonah through all of this, and he'll use many things to try to wake us up out of that stupor that we're in. And in this story, he begins to use the pagan captain to try to wake Jonah up. This is what he says in verse 6. The captain approached him and said, what are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots, and then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. 
Man, there's one quick thing I want to point out here, and it's that Jonah's disobedience affected everybody else around him in the boat. So for us, I want you to write this down. Our sin always affects other people. Always. We, we don't live in a vacuum, even though we all, always think we do. We're in such an individualistic culture that we just think we can do whatever we want and it won't affect anybody else. But every decision that we make affects the people around us in our lives. Every decision, which means every time we choose to reject God's word, it will affect someone that you love. There's no better example of this than a family with kids, right? This is a good microcosm of how that works because your sins will affect your children, parents. When you reject God in a certain way, they're going to learn to reject God in that certain way. When you struggle with controlling your anger, that's going to affect them. They're going to see that in your life and they're going to struggle to control their anger, most likely. Or when you're the opposite and you're passive and you refuse to say things that need to be said, they're going to grow up avoiding the problems of life and being passive in the things that need to be said. It goes this way. All We could go through all these. If, when they, when they, if you worry about money or you're greedy with your money, they're going to worry about money or they're going to be greedy with their money. If you have negative self-talk, you always feel like you're down on yourself and you're not good enough, they're going to do that in their lives and they're ne- never going to be good enough. You see, I could go on and on. You pass it on to the people around you, especially your children if you're a parent. We'll pass these things on and they'll be able to sniff it out. They'll be able to see. They'll, they'll be able to connect the dots like the sailors were doing here. The sailors were connecting the dots. They were like, who is doing this? must be Jonah's fault. Lots are cast on him. They can see it. And that's when they enter in verse 8. This is how the story goes. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What's your business? Where, where are you from? What's your country? And what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were seized by great fear and said to him, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. And so they said to him, what should you do? Excuse me, what should we do so that, so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse, spiral down further and further. And he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. They didn't want to throw him overboard. He's like, yeah, it's me. You should toss me. They're like, no, 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 they're rowing, they're rowing, they're trying. So the story is building, and these guys are terrified in this moment, and they know that it's because of Jonah's rebellion against God, and they're even more terrified because of that. They're seeing God's power on display through this storm, and they know that it's the God who created everything now. And the fear these guys have, though, is it's, it's the wrong kind of fear still, right? They're afraid, they're terrified of God. He's scary. He's created this storm. We don't know this God. It's the God of the unknown, there's fear. Or maybe they think it's unfair. You know, that's how the new atheist group sees it. You know, people today in our culture, they're looking at God and they're angry at him because he doesn't make our lives better the way that we think he ought to. Uh, he doesn't take away the hurt or the tragedy or the storms. Sometimes he makes it for us. Sometimes he puts us in the storm. That's what's going on in the story. We're literally saying that God created this storm that these people are in. What kind of God would do that, they might say? See, that kind of fear that comes up from an unknown God shows that we don't know that God has a bigger story in mind. He's pursuing Jonah. That's what God is doing. There's a personal relationship and God is pursuing Jonah and the sailors get caught up in that and they start to see God's power on display. They start to get to know this unknown God and they start to realize that the storm is not the worst thing here. Running from God is. 
The storm's not the problem. Running away from God's revealed will is the problem. So the sailors do something that Jonah has yet to do. Verse 14, so they called out to the Lord. Jonah doesn't do that, but they do. They start praying, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. And then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. And the men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The wrong kind of fear turned to the right kind of fear because that, that language that's used there, fear of the Lord, that's like, hey, they got saved. That's the language that we see in the Old Testament for when they, it goes from being an unknown God to a known God. And they recognize who that God is and they fear him in the right way. They put their faith in him because they see this happen. It's pretty cool. I wish I could spend more time here, but they developed that right kind of fear. They were seized by this fear and they were in awe of God. They began to worship God because he spared their lives. They saw his power. They saw that he's pursuing Jonah. And then there's this miraculous calm that occurs when Jonah goes into the sea basically means they got saved. But this is, let's, let's finish this out with verse 17. This is what it says. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So that's where we'll stop for this week. That's the end of chapter one. It's a little unit in and of itself. We'll get to chapter two next week. But see, God wasn't done with Jonah yet, right? The storm stops in a miraculous way. But it's just the beginning of Jonah's journey back into following God. It wasn't the end of the journey for him. So as Jonah goes overboard, the sea gets calm. And it's very reminiscent of Jesus calming the storm. Because remember, he goes down into the bottom of the boat, or the bow of the boat as well, and he's asleep in the middle of the storm, right? But for different reasons than Jonah. And then when he wakes up, and the disciples don't have the faith, he has the faith. And he says, peace, be still, and the storm miraculously stops. So it's a really interesting parallel. We'll get more into that next week and the weeks to come. This is a beautiful, miraculous display of God's power here where there's this calming, miraculous calming of the storm. And Jonah's then taken down into the depths of the belly of the fish. And yes, it does say fish, not whale. And so I'm aware of that with the uh, whale that's on there. Just ignore that, okay? It's a fish. We don't know what that means exactly. It's not a whale, probably. It's a fish. We get that. I know it's very important. Like I said last week, very important theological point. We can debate about that if you need to. Just set up a coffee meeting with me. But obviously the point is God does something supernatural here. It's a supernatural story. It's, it's supernatural. God is pursuing Jonah. He's trying to win Jonah's heart here. He's pursuing him. And he does the supernatural act that we'll get into the belly of the fish next week when we get into chapter 2. So we'll go there. For Jonah, he's trying to show Jonah that he's a God of love, a God of relationship, not a God of rules and religion and just doing certain things. Jonah's over here like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. That's what's going on here. He's looking in, and he's do, God is doing something in Jonah's heart. Now, he's doing something in the sailor's heart, too. He's doing something in the sailor's heart, but he's doing something in Jonah's heart. You remember the story of the prodigal son? The youngest son wants to leave his father's house with the inheritance, and essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I just want your money now, and I'm going to go and live with it however I please. And so his father gives him his wish. He, he says, take the inheritance now, and so he goes and spends it on parties and girls and fast living and all of that, the American dream, uh-oh. And then he's brought low because there's a famine and he, he spends all of his money. He loses it all and he hits the storm. He gets in the midst of the storm and he's eating out of the pig slop and he's saying, well, my father's house has servants that eat better than me and so 
that moment where he hits rock bottom is that moment that changes his heart and it brings him to a place of humility and repentance. And so he goes back to his father, hoping that he can just get into his father's house as a servant. Right? He's going to make the pitch, hey, if you'll just let me back in as a servant, I'll pay back my debt and I'll live in this way. But what does the father do in the story? When he sees his son from far off, he runs to his son with open arms, embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe around him and says, son, welcome home. And his son says, no, no, dad, I'll be your servant. And the father won't hear of that. No, no, no. He's his son. And he's going to restore him back into the family. And so he throws a party for him. And it's this big celebration. And the prodigal's brother's out in the fields and he hears about his brother coming back. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here, man? I've been working for you, dad. I've been doing all the right things, Dad, where's my party? Why aren't you celebrating me? What's going on? And he will not hear of having his brother, this Cretan, this, this terrible guy, coming back into his family. Guys, that's what Jonah is doing here with the Ninevites. And unfortunately, that's what we do a lot of times as well. Jonah hates that God has called him to preach to Nineveh. He doesn't want him to even have the chance of following God and experiencing his mercy and being brought into God's people and family. So he runs the other way. And unfortunately, I think so many Christians in our American context do the very same thing and may not even realize it. Maybe this is where you're at today. I don't know your story. Maybe you are looking at someone in our city and because of the color of their skin, because of the culture they come from, you make judgments that are not only unfair, but they're sinful and they're wrong. And by doing that, you wouldn't even, you're not meaning to, but you're saying, I don't even think they deserve God's mercy. I'm never going to take God's message of mercy to them. Or maybe, and probably more in line with what Jonah was experiencing here, you don't want God to show mercy to somebody that's your enemy or that's hurt you, you know? You just can't imagine that person, that terrible person over there that hurt you, that God could ever change their heart or that God could ever bring them out of whatever they're in. You might even hope they hurry up and die. You just don't want them around because they're so terrible. They're too far gone. God's mercy could never reach them. So deep in your hearts, you don't even think they deserve God's mercy. Guys, we are Jonah. I'm sure you can think of somebody in your life that you've done this with. Maybe you don't even realize you're doing it. You're withholding God's mercy because of a deep heart issue. Deep in your heart, you don't think they deserve it. See, this is the crux of the whole thing with Jonah. And as we kind of wind our time down here, this is what we, we Jonah missed what God is really after. Jonah missed it. Because again, Jonah looked like a pretty upstanding guy. He was doing all the right things. He was preaching prosperity. He looked like a good, he was speaking on behalf of God in every other way except for the one way that God told him to. He told him to go and share God's message with his enemies. And he wouldn't do it. He said no. And I can't help but think of those of us in the church today who rail against our wicked, evil culture as though we're surprised that they're living that way, right? Speaking truth, quote, prophetically on behalf of God. But we won't meet those people where they're at and go extend the message of God's love to them. We'd rather talk about them on social media, put out posts out there on Facebook because that's much easier. Sorry, I'm getting upset. Hold on, I'm getting riled up. We'd rather get riled up about their immorality then sit down with somebody and call them up on the phone and ask if we can meet with them face-to-face and share the message of God's mercy with them. How many Christians do that today? I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Maybe that's you. 
That's one reason why I got off social media, so I wouldn't be tempted to do that. Now, I do it in other ways. I promise you that. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But we've got to look in at this, guys. Are we, are we carrying out the message that God has given us to carry out? Or are we saying no, and we don't even realize it? Because, listen, God was trying to wake Jonah up with a storm. How is he trying to wake you up today? What storm are you experiencing? What difficulty are you in? What spiral are you Have you jumped in the boat on this particular issue of sharing God's mercy with even your enemies and God's enemies. We do this all day. We make up rules so that we, don't, we feel better about ourselves because we're saying no in this one area. So we make up rules to make ourselves feel better over here. We might be saying no over here. We're not sharing God's message of mercy with people, but I don't cuss. Uh, I, I don't drink alcohol. Uh, you know, I, I do all the right things. I go to church every week. I uh, read my Bible, right? I'm not doing what God told me to do over here, but don't worry about that. I'm doing all this stuff. Guys, we gotta be, we got to wake up. I mean, we might even follow the Ten Commandments and say, well, I'm not cheating or lying or committing adultery. I'm not doing all these things. But listen, listen, this is the key. God's not after what you do. He's after what you love. And listen, when, when people hear that who are religious, they'll go, no, 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 we got to do the right things, right? Yes, yes, but, but listen, it's because what you love will lead to what you do. But you got to love first. That's the gospel message. We have a God of love who's loved us so much. The one thing that he's telling us to do is love other people. And I'm going to preach that until the day that I die because if we're not careful, we're going to miss what God is trying to wake us up to, church. He's trying to get you and me to love others in the same way that he's loved us. And that will lead to obedience in everything else. He wants our love, not our obligation, not our religion. He wants us to love people enough to share his message of, listen, not condemnation. Not here's what you're doing wrong. You need to change it. Not that. He wants us to share his message of mercy. Jesus died for you. God wants to know you no matter where you are right now. He wants to know you personally. We might be the best people in all the world and do all the right things in every other way, but if we have not love, then we've jumped in the boat. The good things we do have to be a result of love, not a precursor to love. And that's what God is trying to get Jonah to see in this story, and he's trying to get us to see that today, church. He's after what we love. And we know that because God's word has already come to us. Jesus came into the world, into human history to die for his enemies, right? We were his enemies. He came into human history, time and space, living the perfect human life that we ought to live, but we do not. We are God's enemies. We reject God and his ways. We get in the boat all day long. The problem is and always will be, we're not perfect and we don't love like we ought to. We are Jonah, but that's why Jesus came and died for us as his enemies. He, he, died, he was perfect for us. And he would come to be the better prophet. He doesn't just deliver God's message of hope and love to us, but he is God's message of hope and love. He is the message. He came to show us God's love incarnate. And then not only that, he died the death that we deserve for running from God's word. I mean, ironically in the story, Jonah understood this, didn't he? He's like, yeah, it was me, throw me overboard. I deserve to die. He told the sailors to throw him overboard because he knew that his rejection of God's word deserved death. But where Jonah was 
a begrudging sacrifice on behalf of the sailors so that the seas would be calmed and they'd be saved. Jesus was the willing sacrifice on behalf of the whole world for those who would believe in him. He willingly threw himself into the raging sea of God's wrath and calmed the waves so that you and I could live and have peace with God. Don't miss the point because if we respond like the sailors here, because God was doing something in their story while Jonah was disobeying. This guy that's supposed to be God's people speaking on behalf of God. And then over here in the background, there's these sailors that are afraid. And then they encounter the God of the universe and he goes from unknown to known. And it changed their lives forever. Guys, if we will respond like the sailors in awe of the sacrifice God has made for us and worship him with a proper fear of the Lord, as it says here in the text, it will change our lives forever. We are Jonah, yes, but we don't have to stay like Jonah. Our fate doesn't have to end up like his fate. Don't miss the point of the story. We gotta see the comparison that the story is making between Jonah's lack of faith and obedience and the sailors' faith and obedience and the God they hadn't even known before. God is doing something to save people in the world, even what looked like his enemies. And then of course, we're gonna see that as we go on to Nineveh in the coming weeks as well, because listen, if we continue to run like Jonah, then we might just be swallowed up by the fish and taken even lower than we ever thought was imaginable for us. And that's a warning for us, for sure. Prophetic warning here in this book, no doubt. And next week, we'll take a look at what it looks like in the belly of the fish. But maybe you're here today and you're running. My encouragement to you is see the storm that you may be in. Hear those around you trying to wake you up. See what Jesus has done for you, that he died for you, his enemy. And he loves you so much that he wants you in his family. Put your faith in his life, death, and resurrection for you. But for the rest of us here today who maybe we're not running, maybe we just forgot, maybe we're starting to step in, maybe we got one toe in the boat. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you need to respond anew like the sailors. Just look at God. The known, now the known God that you know because of Jesus. Be in awe of his mercy and love for those who don't deserve it, you and me and be willing to share that with somebody else in your life this week that you know they don't deserve it either. But God wants to reach them with his message of mercy. Let's pray. God.